Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, let, let me welcome you too. We're glad that you're here and uh, encourage that you're with us this morning. Uh, w- one announcement before we jump in, I did want to comment. Uh, as we've all just been amazed uh, hearing and, and reading, looking at the news about Haiti. Uh, our deacons are leading us well. They're talking about how we as a congregation together might respond. And so we're in the middle of those conversations and expect to hear more from us. That, that may well be uh, an invitation for us to be a part of an offering that would go to our denominations work there. Maybe down the road that could actually be work teams, depending on what actually happens in Haiti with reconstruction. So please be praying, and we'll be letting you know how we're uh, going to try to respond together as a congregation. Now, this morning, uh, we're here at the beginning of the book of Mark, and we'll be in Mark for the next number of months as we go through the first half of the book of Mark here in the winter and the spring. And uh, we're in chapter 1. This morning, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you'll find in front of you, you'll find that on page 836 of that Bible. Just by way of introduction in this series, as you're turning there, we, we are talking about over the course of this series the fact that Jesus is King and He has come. And we're going to be looking at Mark, seeing what Mark tells us about this King, this King Jesus, this Son of God in the flesh who has come to reign and rule and heal and make the world whole. That's what we're going to be looking at this semester as we look to our King. So let's pray together and then we'll jump in for Mark chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, you, uh, you, you tell us that you are king, and in the page of the New Testament we see that your son, Jesus, in the flesh is our king. And so we pray that uh, as we look to you, our king, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, rub the sleep out, clear out the wax, that we might see and hear who you are. We might be confronted again with the reality of you as king, and that we would see why that is such very good news for us. For some of us, we've known this for a long time, but maybe it's become stale and lifeless. Would you breathe it back to life? For maybe some of us, we never thought about the fact that you're uh, not only a great moral teacher and you're not only a healer, but you are in fact king. So would you break in on us in a new way today as we see the glory of your kingship? Wherever we might be, lift up our eyes to you today, to you, King Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. Uh, so, so to it we turn this morning. Here's what we're going to see right now at the, at, on, on the very cusp of Jesus' ministry here in the book of Mark. We're going to see this simple thing, that Jesus is the King that we need. Not only that, because he is our king and the king that we need, we can live lives that are marked by hope. Jesus is the king that we need. Because of that, we can live lives marked by hope. We're going to see three things about Jesus, the king that we need here. We're going to see that Jesus identifies with us, that Jesus is connected to the Father, and that Jesus 
succeeded where we failed. Those, those three things. So first, Jesus is the king that we need because he identifies with us. He identifies with us. He, ch- he has chosen to cast his lots with us. To jump in where we are with both feet, with no looking back. He identifies with us. Now, we're coming off Christmas season, and we spent a couple weeks around Christmas talking about the birth of Jesus, and therefore talking about the incarnation. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh, fully God, fully man, the mystery of the incarnation of God becoming flesh, of becoming one of us. God stepping in and identifying with us in that way. And that's foundational. But here, what we see this morning is building upon that truth. When Jesus was baptized, when he was baptized, that is a picture of him identifying with us. It says that uh, this baptism that John, John the Baptist, was, uh, was giving to the people of Israel, if you were here last week or you look a few verses up, all of Israel, all of Jerusalem were coming out to be baptized by John in this, this lay renewal movement as people were being called to repentance and faith. And it uh, is very explicit in verse 4 there. All the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, that brings up this question for us. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why did he need to be baptized? Because if you know anything about what the New Testament teaches, it's that Jesus was without sin. And here's John proclaiming a baptism of confessing your sin that you might be healed and forgiven. Because all through Scripture we see the sinlessness of Jesus. Here in Hebrews 4, uh, 4, verse 15, it says this. It refers to Jesus as a high priest. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Writer of Hebrews saying that here is Jesus tempted like us, but never having sinned. God in the flesh, pure If you were here in Sunday school and saw the beginning of our new series, Jesus, God in the flesh, holy. In that sense, utterly unlike us. And John realized that. In in Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism in the first few chapters of Matthew, when Jesus shows up on the scene, John says, this is the one I was talking about. And Jesus comes and says, baptize me. And John says, why would I baptize you? I I need to be baptized by you. Here the greater one has come. See, John realized, who am I to baptize you? Because Jesus is the sinless one. If anyone on the side of the River Jordan or anyone who ever lived didn't need to be baptized, it was Jesus. And yet he was. Think about it this way. Um, High school students. Okay, let's say uh, it's your junior year and you take the SAT. And a couple months go by and you get the results back. And let's just say that the results weren't exactly what you were hoping for. Or, more to the point, maybe the results were not exactly what your parents were hoping for. And so they uh, help you to make the decision that over the course of the summer that you're going to take an SAT prep course so that you can make a better score in the fall. And so you know what is coming. You're going to step into class that day, first day of summer, and you know that all of your friends are spending summer at Water Country and Bush Gardens, and you're at SAT prep class. You come in that first day, you sit down with all the other people who uh, had so wisely decided they need to take SAT prep class, and, and here comes one of your good friends who comes and sits down next to you, and you're shocked because this friend is that friend, the guy that made the, the 2400 on his SAT. 
Now, somebody had to pull me aside after first service when I said he made a 1600 on SAT. Let me let the rest of us in on a secret. You can now make a 2400 on the SAT. That's the new high score. I told him he made a 1600. Nobody was really impressed. Okay, so the guy who made the 2400 on the SAT, and you look at him and you're like, why are you here? And he looks at you and he says, you are my friend. And you're at SAT prep class, and I want to be with you because you're my friend. And so I'm right here taking this class with you. Or let's say that you have to go into the hospital for surgery, as many of us have, and many of us have experienced that while being a part of this church. And you go in, and the receptionist out in the waiting room for, for the, at the surgery, uh, on the surgery floor, is overwhelmed by the number of your friends and home group members that come to be with you. And everybody's there to pray for you, encourage you. But that moment comes when the nurse takes you and only you back down the hallway for your surgery. What happens if you turn around and you see your good friend there and say, you can't, you can't come back here. I'm, I'm about to get uh, open heart surgery. And your friend says, well, I'm going to too. Because <laughs> you're my friend and I'm going with you. Now, that would sound a little nuts to us. <laughs> but it does get at something of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I don't need this, but I'm identifying with you. Because I'm coming after you, I am taking on this baptism. I am identifying with you, not because I need it, but because you so desperately do and I have come here for you. Jesus, when he turns to John, who's objecting, not, not me, Lord, I can't baptize you. He says, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this is God's plan, John. And we will follow that. Because Jesus had come to identify with us and specifically to identify with us in our sin. Here's the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Paul looks at this, at this mystery and says, Jesus, the sinless one, God looks at him because of what he has done for us and looks at him as sin. Takes on sin that he never had of his own. He takes ours so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, at his baptism, is declaring, this is what I have come to do for you. Commentator uh, William Lane says this, Jesus comes in the role of the lowly penitent passively receiving the sign of repentance on behalf of the people of God. He goes on to say, Jesus' baptism signifies that his mission will be to endure the judgment of God. See, Jesus is here taking on the sign of repentance with his people, just as Jesus will take on the actual sin of his people, identifying with them. In other words, Jesus' baptism, he's identifying with us, he's identifying with you. Coming to where we are in our spiritual need and guilt, brokenness and isolation. He's coming right where we need him to be. And he does this ultimately at enormous cost to himself at the price of his very life. And here's the thing. Our King Jesus who comes to do this, he didn't have to. He didn't have to. But he chose to identify with us. He is a good king and he is the king that we need. Uh, Reminds me of a... One of my favorite novels, and it's one of my favorite novels because of this quote I'm about to read you, but it's called Gates of Fire, and it's about uh, the Battle of Thermopylae in the 5th century B.C. when King Leonidas of Sparta and a hand-picked chosen number of his men along with some other Greeks stayed at the Pass of Thermopylae, about 1,500 men, and for three days defended that pass against over a million soldiers in the army of King Xerxes so that the rest of the Greeks would have time to retreat to regroup 
and ultimately expel the Persian army, and they died to the last man. But in this novel, there is one survivor who is wounded, and he's taken before King Xerxes, who asks him about his king, King Leonidas, and he says this, I will tell his majesty what a king is. A king does not abide within his tent while his men bleed and die upon the field. A king does not dine while his men go hungry, nor sleep when they stand at watch upon the wall. A king does not command his men's loyalty through fear, nor purchase it with gold. He earns their love by the sweat of his own back and the pains he endures for their sake. That which comprises the harshest burden, a king lifts first and sets down last. A king does not require service of of those he leads, but he provides it to them. He serves them, not they him. And our hope is that our King Jesus is this kind of king, one who identifies with us, one who serves us, one who saves us, and therefore one who brings us hope. He's the king that we need. Now, secondly, Jesus, this king that we need, not only does he identify with with us, Jesus, the king that we need, is the king that we need because he is also connected to the Father. Look back with me at verses uh, 10 and 11. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You see, in this moment, we are given a glimpse of spiritual reality, of a reality that lies behind the reality we see with our eyes. As heaven is torn open, it's a, it's a metaphor for the dramatic inbreaking action of God as he peels back the covers so that we can see what's really going on. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way as he speaks of heaven. It says, heaven in the Bible often means God's dimension beyond our ordinary reality. It's more as though an invisible curtain right in front of us was suddenly pulled back. So then instead of trees and flowers and buildings, or in Jesus' case, the river, the sandy desert, the crowds, we are standing in the presence of a different reality altogether. And as Jesus looks through that open curtain, and as those around him do, they see the Spirit coming down like a dove, and they hear the voice of God saying, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Here is what is going on for Jesus as he is baptized, as he is identified with us. He is also, at that very moment, he is being empowered by God for the mission to which God has called him. Sees the, the Holy Spirit coming down, representing the presence and the power of God coming to rest on him. In fact, that's what it says here, that the, the, uh, that the Spirit came down uh, on him like a dove. Literally in the Greek, it says the Spirit came down into him. In other words, this, this power, this, this provision of God coming into his very being, equipping him utterly for what God has for him next. And he says, you are my son. Now, when he says that, he's not, he's not simply being set aside at that very moment, as if in this moment God looks down over all of humanity and sees uh, the prime candidate, Jesus, and says, okay, you, you're the one. Okay, today, you're, you're my son. I'm adopting you. No, he looks down, and when he declares, you are my son, he is speaking to this reality that is held true since Jesus' birth and before since before the beginning of, the t- of time when God the Son in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit dwelling together in majesty and glory, this Son, 
The one who is always Son, becoming flesh. And so when he looks down and sees Jesus and speaks these words, he is speaking about a reality that is already true. You are my Son. You are my Son. And you are my beloved Son. I am well pleased with you. And in this very moment, as that curtain is torn back and we hear these words and we see the Spirit coming down, we see on display this incredible central mystery of of Christianity, that God exists in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we worship one God in three persons. And we see that on display here. We see all three persons of the Trinity. We see Jesus, the Son. We see God, the Father, speaking to Him. And we see the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of this dove to bring Him power and to bring Him what He needs for His mission. That's what's going on here. And here's why that is important. C.S. Lewis speaks of this relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the great dance. And he says this, that before time began, God existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect relationship with each other, in perfect dynamic relationship with each other, in a relationship that was marked by love. Because love is always a dynamic thing, never a static thing, right? Because if you are going to love, then that draws you towards someone else. It propels you out for the good and care of another. And what we see in Scripture of the Trinity is that God has always existed in this mysterious relationship with Himself, which means foundationally for God, before anything was created, there was love. It is not as if God had to create anything, angels, the world, us, so that He might have an object of love, so there now could be a relationship of love. You see, instead, God has always been in a relationship of love. And so when he creates us, it's not so that he can now experience something he didn't know, love, but instead to draw us in to the very life of God, to the very life of the Trinity, to, very, to this very relationship of love. That is why Christ has come, to forgive us, to heal us, to bring us out of our sins so that we can be brought back into restored relationship. This picture here of the intimacy of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the relationship that we are brought into by Jesus, restored relationship with God. We're brought into this kind of love. And we see it on display here as Jesus hears those words, you are my beloved son. And if you were to read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus' most common uh, address of God is to call him Father. And though that was not unknown in the Old Testament, nobody taught that and spoke that way to God the Father like Jesus did. The warmth and intimacy of it was uh, shocking to the people around him. He said, this is my Father and our Father. And it is a relationship of love. Now, why does God say this to Jesus now, at this particular point? Okay, I think a few things are going on. First, I think he says it to Jesus for the good of those around him who are listening and for the good of us as we read Mark's Gospel. Because when we hear this, we are brought into this relationship and we see it on display. We hear God saying, this is my son. He is my beloved son. I am well pleased. And those around Jesus heard the very same words. It's for us. But have you ever thought about this? That maybe those words also were for Jesus and for his good. Because though maybe sometimes we are quick to say Jesus is fully God, do we really believe the other part, that Jesus was fully man? Here we have God the Father bringing words of comfort and strength and encouragement to His Son. Words that He is going to need to remember in the days ahead. Maybe you've heard those words from a spouse, from your children, from a loved one, from your parents that say, I love you. 
And maybe you've heard those words from that person a hundred times, but when you hear it again, doesn't it bring something to life again in that moment? I think about times with my wife Elizabeth. For instance, when I'm getting ready to go into a day or a situation that she knows is going to be difficult or, uh, or draining or hard, and she sit, looks at me and she says, I love you. And suddenly I remember, it is going to be okay. Whatever happens next, whatever happens out there, because at the end of the day, I'm loved. And God is reminding his son, reminding us of this, you are loved. And he says that to Jesus. You take those words from someone you know and love. Magnify them a thousandfold, and maybe you get a taste of the power of hearing these words from God Himself, from our Heavenly Father, the one who knows everything, who holds all things in His hand, the creator and sustainer of the universe, saying this, You are my Son, and I love you. I'm here for you. You are my beloved child. I am here. And astoundingly, in Jesus, as we put our faith in Him, because we are bound to Him, then we hear those very same words from the Father as well. Those words of affirmation and assurance and comfort that come to Jesus are the very words that all Jesus' people hear as well. When God says to Jesus, You are my Son, I am well pleased with you, at the very same moment He says to all of us who are His in faith, You are my child because of Jesus. You've been brought into the family. You are my beloved child. I am well pleased with you. Do you see how the power of hearing those words could bring divine encouragement and strength flooding in your life? Hope that is unbreakable and life-giving. Hope that is utterly realistic, not a pipe dream or a wishful fancy, but instead a foundational truth of existence, do you see how it could bring that kind of power and that kind of life to you? How it could galvanize you even this week in the midst of the struggle and the temptation, the trial that you're in right now? To know that whatever comes in your life, even when you can't possibly understand the reason for it, to know that God is there, that he loves you, that you are not alone, and that though suffering or disappointment or temptation or deep struggle with sin might mark your road, it is not our destination. Because God, our Father, is bringing us ultimately not into death, into glory with Jesus. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Because of that, we can be a people of hope. Now finally, not only is Jesus the king that we need because he identifies with us and because he is connected to the Father, we see here too that Jesus is the king that we need because he succeeded where we failed. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The very first thing that happens when Jesus is proclaimed as king and given the power he needs for his mission here at his baptism, he does not step up then into his throne. What happens instead? He is sent out into the wilderness. He's driven. It's it's almost a violent word in the Greek. He is expelled into the wilderness by the Spirit to go and do battle with the great enemy of the kingdom. He goes not to luxury but to deprivation and to wildness. Uh, There's a joke I heard this week that's apparently pretty common in Britain. 
It goes like this, that everywhere the queen goes, she smells fresh paint. But our Savior Jesus does not smell fresh paint. He does not know luxury and comfort. Instead, he goes to the wilderness. As we saw last week when we talked about John baptizing in the wilderness, the wilderness is a place of sparseness where there is not enough to sustain life and you're thrown ultimately at the feet of God to meet your every need. That's where he sends Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus goes into the wilderness for this time, that he goes for these 40 days and he spends those 40 days fasting without food and he undergoes, as we see here, temptation. And when he does that, he steps into a history of temptation that runs straight through the Bible. Takes us back first to not 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, but 40 years of it when God's people, Israel, is brought out of slavery in Egypt and they disobey God and they spend 40 years grumbling and stumbling and often disobeying in the place of temptation in the wilderness. And it drives us back even further to that. Not to a wilderness this time, but to paradise, to a garden. Adam and Eve in the middle of everything perfect with only one command. Whatever you do, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you do it, you will die. When they had every advantage at the tips of their fingers, and they too disobeyed and fell. See, Jesus steps into a history of temptation and fall. And he steps into a history of temptation uh, behind which lies a tempter. It says uh, here that he is, well, that he, he comes here in, at the hands and the temptation of Satan, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Satan is a Hebrew name, a Hebrew word that means adversary. And the one that tempts Jesus here is the very one who has been the enemy of God's people from the beginning. It is the very one who showed up in the garden so long ago and said, Did God really say that? And you believed him? And he said he's got your best interests at heart. You believed him? Really? Adam and Eve, our first, parent, our first parents, choosing to listen to the voice of Satan rather than the voice of God. But here, a temptation that turns out differently. Not in a garden with every advantage, but instead in, in a wilderness where every, with every disadvantage where Jesus is assaulted in person by our adversary, Satan, and he does not fall. He does not listen to the lie of Satan. He does not move away from God. He does not choose Satan's word over God's. He does not fall into the relational break that has so marked every aspect of humanity since the day Adam and Eve first took the fruit. Instead, he says, no, it stops here and it will be different. No. And you see, Jesus comes through that temptation. And he gives us a glimpse here of a resource in the midst of temptation. What were the voices, what was the voice ringing in Jesus' ears as he goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the voice of Satan? That very voice of God. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And by listening to that voice, Jesus turns from temptation and he succeeds. Listening to the voice of God rather than the adversary and it signals the end of the enemy. Victory, one here at this moment as a part of what Jesus has come and done and broken the back of Satan here as he resists temptation himself and later at the cross as he wins back forgiveness and life for all those 
who the Lord brings to himself. You see, he has broken the back of Satan. And though he thrashes now, his end is clear. And his ultimate power has been shattered for all who are in Jesus because it happens here. And that is resource for us in our temptations as well. It means that as we are brought into relationship with Jesus, we are brought into this victory and this success as well. Now we don't stand before God with Adam's failure, with Israel's failure, with our own failure draped around our neck. Instead, we stand before God with Jesus' success given to us, cleansing us, becoming our new record before the Father. And that means that the Father's word of acceptance and forgiveness and love is a supreme resource in our own battles against temptation and sin in our own times in the wilderness. Okay, let me try to wrap this up. Jesus is the king that we need, and because he is, we can live lives of hope. You see, Jesus identified with us in our baptism. He came close, and he brings us into his own connection with God as he brings us into the very relationship of love of the Trinity. And in him, we hear the words of the Father as we're invited into this love of God. And you see, that love becomes for us the center point, the anchor of life for us. And when you see that, and when you grasp it, when you take it in, then it begins to change you, to give you hope, when you realize that nothing can keep you from the Father. Nothing can take you away from this unbreakable love. The enemy has been beaten, and you have now been given not only forgiveness, but even resources for our very real battles with temptation every day. And that means that this week, you have the resources at hand. When you're overwhelmed at the end of a long day, you come home and you collapse in a chair. You mindlessly flip through the channels for two hours, hoping that you're going to see something that will distract you or entertain you or grab you or give you what you most want. Escape from your real life when you're in that moment. Or when, you, when your spouse or your child does the thing, says the thing, gives you that look and all your inner frustrations uh, and hurt and anger, they leap out and strike back in that moment. When you open your mouth to criticize or critique or tear down or gossip. Or when something happens this week and someone around you gets a glimpse behind the polished exterior and the put-together facade that you've so masterfully crafted around yourself and they get a glimpse into what's really going on in your life and in your soul. When these things and more happen to us this week, remember this, that you have a king a Savior, Jesus, who identified with you, not at your best moment, but at your worst. Not when you're dressed up looking good, but at baptism, pointing to your sin and your need. When you were utterly undressed and needy, He identified with you there. He knows. He didn't turn away. Instead, He's come close. And remember these words, You are my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased. These are spoken to you in Jesus. The Father thinks that about you because He's brought you into His family through His Son, Jesus, our older brother. And remember in temptation that there's a more beautiful, more sure, more life-giving voice than that of the adversary. There's the Father's voice speaking to you, drawing you into His life, His love, His story. And when you, uh, and when you even this week, when you close your ears to the voice of the Father, when you let the adversary have the day. It is not the last word 
in your life. Because our king has won and our king will bring us his people, his stumbling, needy people. He will bring us home. That's what our king is going to do. That is why he is the king that we need. This is our king. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Your love is beautiful beyond speaking. Would you drive it home for us this week? Would you bring it down into the core of our being that we might find our life there in you, Jesus, as you connect us to love of the Father, as we find ourselves in you suddenly amazingly forgiven and washed clean and accepted and spoken these words of love to us, us, May we rest in that this week. May it soften us and change us. And may it spill out in praise for you, our loving Father, for you, Jesus, our heavenly King, and for you, Spirit, Trinity, our God. We look to you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.